Thank you for listening to the Life Church of Kansas City, Missouri. Consider supporting by giving at tlckcmo.com, subscribing, and sharing this message with your friends. God bless you. I uh, love the Christmas season, and I love uh, the celebration of the birth of Jesus. It emphasizes Jesus was real. He was in flesh. He came to be our Savior, and he was God incarnate. So I rejoice in that. I'm going to speak with you a little bit tonight on the biblical prophecy of where the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. We're going to look at two accounts. We're going to look at Matthew's account, and then we're going to go back to the source that Matthew pulled from to quote and Micah 5. So tonight I want to speak with you a little bit on finding Bethlehem. So as we, we look at this, I want to give you a little bit of background on it to understand the scriptural context of the, the prophecy, the messianic prophecy relating to the city of Bethlehem. And then I want to kind of bring it home to something that we can take home and to put into practice, okay? So let's read Matthew chapter 2, very familiar passage to us in the Christmas season. Uh, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. He had to call together the chief priests and the teachers of the law. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Let's look at Micah chapter 5. Let's look at this passage in Micah that Matthew quotes in the story. He cites this. Um, and uh, just to kind of understand, we're going to look at this. Um, ancient writers of the time, this, this applies to the Gospels, with the exception of Luke, they weren't after like documenting to every dot of the I and cross the T. When they wrote a gospel, when they wrote a book, they were writing to teach a purpose. And so they would use the history, but they would fit it in to help them prove the point and to teach a lesson. That's how they did it then. Now, Luke was concerned about everything being right and proper and in the pro proper chronology. Matthew, when he quotes, he does not quote this passage exactly, but there's a reason why I believe that, that it was fudged a little, not, not to be inaccurate, but just kind of changed the emphasis a little bit. Micah says in chapter 5, Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler 
on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He, meaning the Messiah, will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. So let's look at the original passage then. Let's go back to Micah and let's examine a little bit of why and how this prophecy was given at the time. So who was Micah? Uh, He was one of the minor prophets, we call that, not because he was lesser in importance or in qualifications, but he was minor in that his book is very short. We only have a little bit that was written. Some of it we attribute to Micah himself. Other could have been added in for clarity and to give historical context. But it, it uh, was authored by a prophet to Judah. Now, after Solomon, Israel was split into two kingdoms. We have Israel and we had Judah. And so uh, this kingdom of Judah, each part had its own series of prophets because they each had their own rulers and they each had their own political problems. Um, Both uh, kingdoms would be known to fall into apostasy and into uh, paganism from time to time and turn from God and times they would turn back. But Judah... Uh, And we're talking about the years about 737 to 690 B.C. That is over 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. So this was a long time ago. Micah ministered under under the reign of three kings, Jothan, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So he was a contemporary of some of the other prophets that we are familiar with. While he was ministering, Isaiah was in uh, probably within the palaces ministering, and uh, he Isaiah was busy with his ministry as well. The prophets in Israel, the other part, uh, were Amos and Hosea, and way off somewhere in a ta- in a uh, city state called Nineveh, we have the prophet Jonah. So all of those prophets were ministering at about the same time. So this place is Micah as one of the first, the earliest prophets we have in the Old Testament. He preceded major prophets by probably at least a hundred years. He preceded Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel. All those were in the future when Michael wrote. Micah wrote. Um, in fact, Jeremiah quotes a portion of Micah in his uh, book uh, that that he pens, and he attributes it to Micah. So we know that there is a a direct line of credibility of Micah's writings um, onto at least 100 years later uh, through Jeremiah. The opening verse of the book of Micah tells us that Micah was from Morasheth, which was a small peasant village about 25, 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Now, there could be no two greater contrasts than the two prophets in Judah. 
Um, we have Isaiah, who was of royal lineage. He was related to uh, kings, and Isaiah was very eloquent, learned. His, uh, his prof- book of prophecy was very polished and eloquent. And we get a beautiful messianic prophecy from Isaiah uh, that we are familiar with. So there's, there's Isaiah, the, this very um, proper very uh, well-to-do. And then we have Micah, who was born in a very small peasant village. And um, he, uh, to emphasize just how much of a country bumpkin that Micah was, throughout the the prophetic book of Micah, we see that he mentions about going barefoot a lot. There's some uh, thought that Micah as a kind of an object lesson, went around barefoot all the time. So he would have been right at home in the Ozarks. He would have been right there. So we have a laid-back guy, very simple guy, Micah, but with a powerful ministry. Um, one little clever thing, that if you go back and read Micah, uh, the book of Micah, um, he, his name means who is like God. It Micah is actually uh, a shortened version of um, Micaiah or Mikael, which is Michael. Um, and so it's kind of like saying Mike. You know, it, people call my friends, call me Mike. That's what Micah was. It was a shortened ver- version of Mike Michael. So um, when he pins his prophecy, Micah 7.18, towards almost the end of the book, he says, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression. When he does that, he puts his name in there. That's Micah's name. Who is a God like you? He actually inserts his name cleverly there. So at the time Micah was prophesying, Judah was in turmoil. Now there's a lot of, we think we have politics today. They had politics back then. There was vying for power. There was power brokerage. There was allies and enemies Galore. So at the time he is prophesying, the world power that they had to contend with was the Assyrians. And the Assyrians were threatening on the borders of Israel and Judah. And they knew that if the Assyrians woke up one day and decided they wanted to take over, they could do it. So things were very tense. So Judah and Israel both scrambled to find allies to protect them. And this is where God has a contention with them because rather than go to God as their source of protection, they abandoned what they had known as their source of protection and they went to seek allies from the other nations who in reality could not help them at all. This was not going to end well. Micah's book is filled with prophecies of rebuke to Judah for looking to other countries and an abandoning God. He warns of an impending judgment. But there is a pattern in the book of Isaiah, where I, uh, I'm sorry, in a book of Micah, where Micah will present this gloom and doom picture of a judgment and a judgment for sin, but then he brings in an element of hope and salvation. It's almost as if he, speaking for God, he's saying, look, God's saying, I don't want to punish you. I don't want that. There's an out. I want to be your savior. I want to be the one who rescues you if you just turn to me. And then Micah cycles through again 
and he again repeats judgment and then hope. So when we read this passage in the book of Micah, we see he begins chapter 5 with a gloom and doom prophecy. Marshal your troops now, for a siege is laid against us. This was speaking a language of voicing the fears that everyone had. This is what they were afraid was going to happen. And Micah was telling them, yes, it's going to happen. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. So it doesn't matter how much you let, you think you're safe during the siege. At some point, you will be defeated and Israel's ruler will be struck on the cheek with the rod. But then he calls out a note of hope. He gives them hope because then he goes in and tells them about a savior that's going to come. And the, uh, the Hebrews knew him as the Messiah or the chosen one. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you were small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. Now, as they read this, as they do in New Testament times, when God in flesh walked and stood before them, they thought that the Messiah was going to be a political leader. They saw all of the messianic prophecies as leading up to someone who was going to defeat their enemies militarily. Um, and so this was part of the frustration of even Jesus' followers because they kept expecting for the time when Jesus says, now go get your swords, let's start hacking up Romans and taking back our homeland. But it never happened because they misunderstood what the prophecies meant. What this is saying, and he go, Micah goes on to say, that he will stand and shepherd his flock. He's going to be a shepherd. Um, and we see that coming to fruition in the life of Jesus. So Micah's offering them hope of the coming Messiah. So now let's look at the passage in Matthew, and let's see how Matthew frames this within his story of Herod and the wise men. Matthew was a tax collector when Jesus called him, which means that he was probably a social outcast. He was hated by his own people. He was probably not a very religious man when Jesus found him. Um, the reason why is because he would not want to have shown up to temples or to synagogues. He shied away from crowds of, of all Jews because he knew that he would face uh, rejection and rebuke. He was a hated man. However, we know that Matthew was probably steeped in Jewish tradition and learnings, probably as he grew up as a child. Because when he penned his gospel, what the strong emphasis is, is that he was writing to the Jewish people to convince them of the kingship of Jesus. We see this in the first chapter of Matthew when he gives Jesus genealogy. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he goes into detail. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. So his genealogy begins uh, with Abraham, the uh, patriarch of the Jewish faith. So Matthew is trying to convince the Jewish people that their Messiah has come 
and he is the rightful king. Now, more than any other gospel, Matthew refers back to Old Testament prophecies. He, about 60 times within the gospel of Matthew, he goes back and picks up Old Testament passages, just like the one that's mentioned from Micah. The other theme that you will find throughout the book of Matthew is that not only was Jesus the king, but Jesus faced constant rejection. That rejection is a theme and it starts immediately with the birth of Jesus. We see this as Mary was rejected because of her pregnancy. Joseph sought to reject Mary and put her away privately. Uh, but then the angel warned, told him that Joseph should not do that. In Bethlehem, they go to find a place to uh, sleep and they're rejected and sent to sleep with the animals. So the story that begins in Bethlehem sets the stage for the story of Jesus because we see from the beginning he is the rejected king. So Matthew quotes Micah. Now Matthew is not simp simply word for word copying Micah as he understood the prophecy from Micah was given by the scribes and Pharisees before Herod. We don't know if there was an, we don't know how we obtained this information, but somehow they got a hold of this and found out about this. It could have been the wise men themselves left some type of record or discussed this with Mary and Joseph when they went to adore the baby. So, uh, <clears throat> as he is quoting Micah, there's a, uh, a significant change, uh, the significance is how he slightly changes verse 1. Um, Matthew quotes it by saying, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Whereas Micah's verse says, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, you will be great. It's not a matter of being different in meaning. It's a matter of change in emphasis. So Matthew's not changing the meaning of the verse. He's pointing out something because Micah is before the prophecy was fulfilled and Matthew stands on the other side of the prophecy. He knows how it all played out. He knows the significance of Bethlehem. And so when he's talking about it, he's now saying, how, how important Bethlehem was. When Micah says Bethlehem was a small, insignificant place, but believe it or not, something good is going to come from there. So their perspectives are a little different. So um, now let's look at the context of how this prophecy came out. The, the wise men. Matthew chapter 2 takes place sometime after Jesus was born. We think that Jesus was probably a year or two old because it refers to Jesus as a child, not as a baby when the Magi showed up at their door. So this was not, uh, as I've mentioned before, to dash all your nativity scenes. The wise men were not present the night Jesus was born. So the Bible doesn't say how many Magi there were, how but we can learn some things from scripture and knowing historical context. Um, there were those who were known as Magi in Palestine at the time. The, the Palestinian people understood that if you had said to them wise men, they would have had some idea of what that was. So it wasn't this 
bizarre thing, these guys showing up with some, you know, odd or weird thing. They at least knew about these people. The fact that they chose to come at that time and for that reason was unusual. In, uh, and, and these Magi were believed to be what we call Parthians, which was just to the east of Palestine. They were a priestly political class of the Parthians. They were most likely very wealthy. We know this because of the gifts they gave Jesus. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh were extravagantly expensive for their time. They were educated. Many Magi were skilled in astronomy and astrology. They were the closest the ancient world could come to scientists. They were able to, to discern from study that a king had been born and it occurred somewhere to their west. And the next place west of them was in Palestine. And so that's where they sought to get the answer to what they were discovering. Now, what is it they found? I don't know, but we know that they were well-versed in astrology and they studied the alignment of the stars. So maybe, perhaps, in somewhere with that, they were able to discern that something momentous had happened. Does that give credibility to astrology? Should we get our horoscopes out? Because God may have a message for us through the uh, daily horoscope. No, no, and no. Okay, so there, the reason why that shouldn't rock your faith is because God will use whatever language he can to speak to someone. And so he spoke to the Magi in the language that they understood. And at the time, it was the language of astrology. So we know this was of God because they had the facts right. And they had a lot of knowledge on that a king had been born, which was greater insight than any of Israel at the time. No one else would have understood that a king had been born in the sense that these men understood that to be. It could have been a supernatural impartation of knowledge from God. We know that wise men from the time of Daniel were known to be interpreters of dreams. So there's a strong possibility that God spoke to them, showing them some alignment of stars in their dreams in, in, in that way. Later, we know that God warns the Magi to go home another way to avoid meeting up with Herod again. So God definitely spoke to them in dreams. Surprisingly, we know that they were monotheistic. There's evidence to suggest that the Parthians had been introduced to the Jewish faith sometime in their history. So they were at least familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. They were at least respectful of Judaism because when Herod called the scribes and Pharisees, the wise men listened to what they had to say and took it seriously and followed their instructions. So that was that at least said that they gave some credibility to Hebrew scriptures. Now, notice something in this story. We often have this uh, the the image that these wise men were on camels, and the star leads them into Jerusalem, and then from there to Bethlehem. However, they had no leading going to Jerusalem. There was no direction, and we know that because they had to ask people. Where is the king of the Jews born? Where, where is he? They figured everyone would know. So they were going based on what they understood and what little bit of information they had and proceeded to go west of where they lived to seek the answers. 
So when they encountered, they go to Jerusalem, naturally they're eventually pointed to uh, the king. And at that point in time, after the prophecy from Micah is given, and it's revealed to them that the city of Bethlehem is where they would find this king, a star appeared to them then, but this was a different star. It was actually moving and directing them because it said it led them to the place where the child was. And so that was a different um, supernatural communication from God, That it, which is not unusual. If we go back through the Bible, there are many times God manifests as light to the Jewish people. He was a pillar by day and a cloud by night. And so it was a pillar of fire that he would appear. And so there were times when God would manifest in uh, images of light and communicate through that way. So um, so we, when we get to uh, when they sought information, um, the word, it says, they, uh, the Magi from the east came saying. So as they uh, came into Jerusalem, the word saying actually means in the original language that it was something repeated. So they were going around to everyone they saw in Jerusalem asking, where was the king born? Now let's look at Herod. Um, Herod was called Herod the Great, and he was the first of, the, of several Herods. Um, his family had been political rulers in Palestine. They had been driven out by the Parthians, the very one, the people that the Magi came from. And uh, they, the Roman occupation was disrupted by the Parthians. Herod was then appointed in Rome as the king of the Jews and was commissioned back to go and retake that, uh, that territory. So he and his family were successful, and that is why he wound up in the palace as the Grand Poobah, okay? So he was not Jewish, so he married a Jewish wife so that they would accept him better as he ruled because his family had been driven out before, and he was not going to let it happen again. He was going to be in his position for life. Now, surprisingly, with everything we know in the Bible about Herod, the historical record tells us that Herod was actually a pretty good ruler. Um, in times of hardship, he was known to have returned money back to the country uh, so that um, they could function and get through times of financial hardship. In times of famine, he was known to have melted down gold to buy food for the poor. He built up cities like Caesarea uh, um, by the Mediterranean. He made public works and arenas. He began the reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem. He was a great ruler. The problem was, don't cross him, okay? He was ruthless, and he would kill anyone he had to to maintain his position of power. His family was driven out, and that was not going to happen again. So into the scene walks the wise men. Now, interesting, interestingly, Matthew says in verse 3, when King Herod heard this, now they were going around asking questions, where's the king of the Jews? When Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now, it wasn't that all the people of Jerusalem were 
suspicious of the wise men or maybe they didn't it wasn't that they didn't like him asking the problem is they knew Herod and they knew that this could mean trouble are we going to have another war is there going to is Herod going to clamp down on this and anyone who spoke to these guys are we going to get in trouble for it so Jerusalem was disturbed as was King Herod um so then the scene is that Herod is there, the wise men inquire of Herod, and so Herod turns and calls forth the scribes and the Pharisees. They were the political and theological leaders of their day. If anyone would know the answer to the question, it was going to be them. So um, when uh, in verse 4, when Matthew says, when he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Herod asked them, and the word asked in the original language, just like the other one was, it was a repeated action. So this was not a scene where Herod turns to them, call them in here. Okay, guys, where is this king supposed to be born? Where's the Messiah supposed to be born? And they turn to Herod and say, hey, we know it's in Bethlehem of Judea. That did not happen. They did not know. They didn't know the answer to it. So I would imagine it could have taken days, however long, their team of scribes and Pharisees to go through scrolls and to pour through everything. They had to find the answer, and it was not readily on the tip of their tongue. So it took a while. Now, it's surprising to us that as Jewish leaders, uh, teachers of the Scripture and the law, they would not have known this very well. However, that is not actually surprising. When I was doing some reading on this topic, I looked through a, um, a book uh, called The Case for Christmas by Lee Strobel. Now, some of you will know him from his book, The Case for Christ. And in this, he interviews biblical scholars on the authenticity of the Christmas story. One of the biblical scholars was raised as a, in the Jewish faith, was, was, was a renowned Christian biblical scholar by the name of Louis Lapidus. Now, surprisingly, when they were discussing Old Testament messianic prophecy, Lapidus told Strobel he was never taught any scriptures about the Messiah in his growing up as a Jew. Um, in fact, I would venture to say that that's probably consistent for most of Judaism today. Although they know about this and some of their biblical, uh, scriptural scholars would know about this, yet the average person would not be familiar with Messianic prophecy. It just wasn't on their radar. Um, it wasn't something they were concerned about. So whatever the process it took them, however long, they finally coughed up the answer. And it was this town in Bethlehem, according to the prophet Micah. Now, in biblical times, Bethlehem was a small town about five to six uh, miles uh, south of Jerusalem. Uh, and so uh, it was pretty small, about five to six hundred people. Today, uh, it's located um just adjacent, uh, you can visit there. It's right next to Jerusalem. To get there, you have to go through the wall that the Israelis have built to separate Israel from Palestine. 
Now, when you, about 10 years ago, we were uh, privileged to be able to go on a trip and we drove through that checkpoint in the wall and went over onto the Palestinian side. If there's any contrast in places, that's it. Uh, Jerusalem looks like it could be you know, some street in downtown Kansas City. You go through across that wall and it's like you're in a third world country. Totally different. I mean, that's where Bethlehem is today. Um, up until Joshua's conquest, it was known as Ephrath or Ephratha, and it means house of bread. Now, we know it, uh, it elsewhere in the Bible is the location for the story of Ruth and Boaz. That's where they met. And more importantly, it was David's hometown where he grew up and tended his sheep. So Jesus being born in Bethlehem was significant in that it emphasized that he was of the line of David. So we've got a picture of the story that Matthew tells us. We've got a picture of all the parts together. But what does this mean for us today? Because I believe it's more than just an interesting thing. I believe that God's trying to teach us something. I think there are spiritual lessons to be gained from this. When all of this was taking place on earth, God was up to doing great things. He was moving he was fulfilling prophecies. He was changing. He was becoming incarnate to live and die for mankind. Huge things were happening. But of all the nation of Israel, the only ones who really understood at the time of the birth of Jesus was the wise men. No one else really appreciated what was really happening. Only the wise men had any inkling of the significance of what was happening. God is doing momentous things in our day and time, is he not? God is up to doing great things. And if we are God's people, if anyone should know what's going on and what God is up to, it should be us. We need to know what God is doing. You need to know what the Spirit of God is up to, not only to minister to the lost, but to give guidance to our friends and our family, to be there, to be God's voice. There are situations that arise in life that perplex us. We have to have discernment. What's going on, God? Is this a battle I'm facing? Is this just flesh? Is it carnal? Or is this something that's spiritual? And if we don't get an answer to those questions, we can really be in a world of trouble. God wants to help us to overcome and to be victorious. And if we don't have the voice of the prophetic in our life, we are going to miss what God is trying to do. We need the prophetic in our lives like never before. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just not me. You, you can attest to this or not. But this past year, I have had God speak to me and to give direction, to wake me up at night, to text someone, to say this to this person, to say a prayer here. These things have happened more in this past year than I have had in my entire life. I don't know what God is up to, but God is, I believe I'm not the only one. I believe he is reviving this spiritual sense, a direction of the spirit in the church so that we are in tune when God is trying to do great things. The voice of the prophetic 
is not only foretelling the future, it is forthtelling. It is speaking the word of God into your life. It's a word from God that is fresh, new, and speaks to specific circumstances in your life. This story in Matthew, I believe, tells us some principles on how we can be in tune to know what was going on. Herod. Herod was a man who at the time should have known what God was doing, but he didn't. Israel was his domain. And if anything was happening and God was doing something momentous, Herod should have been the one to know about it. But Herod was ignorant. He not only did not know where the Messiah was coming from, later we find out that God speaks to Joseph in a dream and tells him, take the child and escape to Egypt because Herod is seeking to kill him. So Jesus, as he's carried by his parents, exits the, the nation of Israel and leaves. So Herod did, was not even privy to that information. He didn't know where the Messiah was coming from and he didn't know where the Messiah was going. He was oblivious to both of that. This reminds me of John 3, 8. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone born of the Spirit. In the Spirit, we know where God is coming from and where he's going. And we can stay in tune with what God is trying to accomplish. There are those who come to church and do all the right things. However, they're oblivious to the moving of God in their lives and the lives of others. There is no voice of the prophetic. They should know what's going on, but they don't. Neither have they spent any effort or time to find out. Like Herod, they don't know where God is coming from and they don't know where God is going. When Herod needed to find out what God was, going, what God was doing and it was urgent that he answer that question, then he did something that just shows how ignorant he really was. He did not know the answer. He depended on the answer on other people to answer for him. There are those that who need to discern God's moving in their lives and they seek some spiritual direction. So to get the answers, and we probably have saints in our church or within just Christianity in general. They need guidance and spiritual direction. But instead of going to God themselves, they have to depend on the spiritual walk of other people. Have we known people like, we, we've encountered people like that. We've tried to minister to. And it was just like from one thing to the next, they were constantly needy, draining you. Because they weren't developing any walk with God on their own. They were depending on other people to do it for them. And they were, there was never any sense of victory or overcoming in their life. So the other thing with Herod is he was motivated by fear. It was his fear that kept him from acknowledging where God was and giving his worship. The child was not something to be celebrated. The child was to be feared. Last Sunday, Brother Hagin said, the enemy only fights those he fears. Fear is our enemy. It can keep us from truly worshiping God and doing what we need to do. The Timothy says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, 
but a power and love and a sound mind. Fear will rob you from your worship of God and hearing his voice. The scribes and Pharisees are another example for us. They didn't know what God was doing in the earth and they weren't really concerned about it. The fact that they had to dig for the answer tells us that it was not something that was important to them. So, however, when the, the crunch was on and they had to get an answer, they knew where to go find it. It took them a while, but they knew where to go find it. Once they gave this answer, the prophetic voice to the wise men, the wise men were truly wise and they acted on that. But the, but the scribes and Pharisees who had brought forth this prophetic voice did not heed it themselves. They did not go themselves to seek this king that had been born. I think that when it comes to uh, a relevance of this in church, uh, there are those who have all the biblical knowledge. In Christianity, even within apostolic churches, you can go to people and you can ask them a biblical question. They know where to find it. They've got an answer for you. However, when it comes to putting it into practice and, and being in tune with the spirit, they're lost. They don't follow through. The Bible is only good if we put it into practice. Otherwise, it's just an interesting set of facts. The, the wise, and, and so today it is important that we heed John's gospel when he, when he quotes Jesus as saying, those who worship God must do so in spirit and in truth. We have to know the word. We have to be grounded in the word, but we also have to be filled with the spirit and understand when God's prophetic, prophetic voice speaks to us. Now we have the wise men. The wise men were kind of late to the party. They came along and they knew it had happened, but uh, they were just late getting there. But they made up for lost time. They recognized what was going on for what it was. God was doing something great in the world. And despite being late, they did not let that stop them. They pursued God and went wherever that took them. Some of you may feel like you've not been in the kingdom of God for very long. Um, you, you may feel I'm new to this and I, I'm not grounded real well and I'm not as, you know, spiritually savvy as my brother or sister sitting over there. But let me tell you, it's not too late. You're not too late to the party. Once you get in tune with the spirit, God can speak and use you just as he does anyone else. We all have the same Holy Ghost. It costs them though. The wise men were willing to sacrifice. It cost them a great deal. Their worship was costly. And following God will cost you. It will cost you. You will have to sacrifice. However, when the Bible, uh, Matthew tells us that when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. They had a party. Finding God's will for your life is not only necessary, it is your greatest source of joy. Serving God is fun. Seeking after him is fun because life is an adventure. So what do we do with that? How do we, how do we apply this? Well, just as Herod, the wise men, and the scribes and Pharisees needed an answer, it was the word of God in their life. It was that prophetic voice 
that gave them the answers they need. Just like today, it is our privilege to be able to go and seek the answers from the word of God. Get alone with your Bible. You've got, it, you've got something coming up. You don't know which way to go. Get alone with the word. Get alone and, and just speak to God and let his prophetic voice speak through the words that he has placed there for you. Um, there, there are opportunities that we are missing if we do not find ways to get in tune with the spirit. Let's stand together. Where are you in this story today? Where is your place? What character do you identify with? Are you hearing from God to know where he's coming from and where he's going? Are you depending on the spiritual walk of others? Are you finding God for yourself and getting that prophetic voice? We need now today, like no other time, to be able to hear the direction and leading of God. Let's have a time. I want to open the altar. Let's have a time when we can do just that. Let's have a refresh, a refreshing look at, at the spirit of God to say, God, I need to be able to hear what you have for me. I, my family needs it, Lord. I need it in my life. I need direction. I need to know what you're doing in this world, Lord. Where are you coming from? Where are you going? I need to know that. It's important for me and my family. And God will speak to you today. God wants to minister to you. He wants to share things with you. He wants to speak to you through his word and give you that prophetic voice. Let's pray together. Let's just seek God right now for a few minutes. Let's find out what God wants with us. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. 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 Oh, God, let us filter out everything that keeps your voice from being spoken in our life. Oh, God, let us be able to be in tune with you so that we know your voice, God, when you speak to us. Oh, God.